0: Hello, and welcome to the Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in internal medicine at the University of Toronto. And I'm joined today by Fahad Razak, who is a staff general internist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto and a Bell Fellow at the Harvard Center for Population and Development Studies. Hey, Fahad, how's it going?
1: Great, Amol. Awesome to be with you today.
0: Oh, it's great to have you. So today, Fahad and I are talking about two topics, as always. Fahad is going to talk about Evolocumab and alirocumab, two new lipid-lowering therapies. And then I'm going to be talking about a new approach to preventing peanut allergy in high-risk infants. And then, of course, as always, we will wrap up with our Good Stuff segment. Uh, you can find everything from our podcast today on our webpage online, which is hosted at healthydebate.ca. Okay, Fahad, kick us off, get us started, tell me about these brand-new lipid-lowering agents.
1: Okay, thanks, Amal. So I'm going to talk about two new monoclonal antibodies that have been targeting the PCSK9 gene. The first is the Odyssey trial that looked at alirocumab, and the second is the Osler trial that looked at evolocumab. Both were reported in the New England Journal of Medicine, and both seem to be very effective at lowering LDL cholesterol levels and perhaps at preventing cardiovascular events. Okay, so... Let's
0: do our best, first of all, to minimize the amount of times you have to say the names of those drugs. And second of all, tell me a little bit about what we knew about uh, lipid lowering and about these drugs before this study.
1: Absolutely. So as many of you know, recent guidelines and guidelines that we talked about on this podcast have described the most effective mechanisms for lowering LDL cholesterol. And those guidelines have argued almost uniformly that the only way to do this safely and to prevent cardiovascular events is through using a statin. About a decade ago, there was an intriguing finding that a a small group of individuals that showed a sequence variant in the PCSK9 gene had substantially lower LDL cholesterol levels, and then broader studies over the subsequent years have found that those individuals in fact had much lower rates of heart disease, perhaps as much as a 90% reduction over a 15 year period. And so people have, wonder, people have wondered whether targeting the PCSK9 gene could represent a non-statin mediated mechanism at preventing cardiovascular disease through LDL lowering.
0: Okay, so that makes a lot of sense and is very exciting. So what did these studies find? What, what are, What's being reported in the New England Journal that you're telling us about?
1: Sure, so once they realized that this gene, the PCSK9 gene had a major role in LDL metabolism, they wondered if they could specifically block this gene in individuals who had normal PCSK9 genes as a mechanism for LDL lowering and over the last few years they've developed monoclonal antibodies against PCSK9 and the two trials that they that are, the two trials that we're discussing today are the first two large trials to demonstrate efficacy in using a monoclonal antibody against PCSK9. The Odyssey trial was a double-blind trial of Allerocumab on top of standard statin therapy with 70 weeks of follow-up, and the Osler trial used an open-label design using treatment with evalocumab and follow-up of approximately one year. Both trials had a typical mix of patients, including those with prior cardiovascular disease, risk factors for cardiovascular disease, familial hypercholesterolemia syndromes, and patients that had elevated LEL despite maximal statin use. What's important to realize is that neither trial was powered or designed to look at long-term mortality or safety outcomes. Those are important results that we still have to wait for.
0: Okay, and so what did they find?
1: So the major finding was that these monoclonal antibodies were in fact extremely effective at lowering LDL. There was approximately 60% greater lowering of LDL beyond what could be achieved with just a statin. The other important finding was that there was no major adverse events, although perhaps one of the two trials did show an increased signal towards potentially worrying neurocognitive outcomes such as delirium and dementia. Now, as I said, these trials were not designed to look at long-term safety or at benefit, but over the 12 to, f- 12 to 18 months that the trials were conducted, a post analysis showed about a 50% reduction in major composite cardiovascular events. So a pretty dramatic effect over statin therapy. Now, it should be kept in mind also that even among statin trials, there was much greater benefit two to three years into the trial than at one year. And so potentially, if these trials were followed, there could be even greater reduction in events.
0: And so what is the absolute number of events that we're talking about here?
1: So using the Osler trial as an example, there was about a 1.2% absolute risk reduction. And that would be a number needed to treat of about 80
0: So the absolute number of events went from about 2.2% to 1%, basically, is what you're saying. Exactly. Okay. What's the major takeaway from all this? I mean, it sounds very promising. Is this ready for prime time?
1: So these are extremely promising results. Certainly, this medication is not ready to use immediately. But given how effective it was in LDL lowering, as long as it's able to establish the expected benefit in long-term cardiovascular event reduction and again doesn't show any major adverse events that are worrying this is certainly a medication that will enter our therapeutics probably in the near horizon and again this is a major caveat to think about in cholesterol lowering trials just because there's been so many examples where tri- where agents that look very promising eventually were not used you know some of the notorious examples for example were niacin for cholesterol treatment considered to be very promising, and a recent trial in the New England Journal, in fact, showed that it was not effective in reducing cardiovascular events, even though it did achieve the kind of lipid changes that people were looking for, and in fact nice and maybe harmful. And we all uh, remember the, the famous example of improving HDL levels through targeted therapy, which in fact showed increased harm.
0: Yeah, so since you bring it up, how does this new class of agents affect other types of cholesterol other than LDL?
1: So this agent, again, seems very promising, not only from the LDL lowering and potentially the cardiovascular risk reduction, but also in its effect on other lipid parameters. So for example, levels of ApoB and triglycerides were also lowered by these treatments, and levels of ApoA and HDL improved with this treatment. And that's something that you also see in statin therapy. But unlike statin therapy, there were also significant reductions in LpA observed here, which is also potentially beneficial. Okay, so I know
0: that as an epidemiologist and clinician, you were probably hoping that I didn't ask you this question, but I just can't resist. How do these drugs work?
1: Uh, You've hit on my weakness. Well, I'm going to give you a very simplistic answer. In normal individuals, PCSK9 is a protein that targets LDL receptors for degradation and thereby reduces the liver's ability to remove LDL or bad cholesterol from the blood. So by blocking PCSK9 individuals would have enhanced ability to, to clear LDL cholesterol. All
0: right, that wasn't bad. You held your own on the, on the basic <coughs> science, I have to say. I'm sweating. I am sweating <laughs> profusely. Okay. All right. So how could you imagine that this would end up integrating itself into our current
1: practice guidelines? So most existing guidelines, both the American and Canadian guidelines, advocate statin use above all other medications as the most effective way of treating cholesterol levels and achieving cardiovascular risk reduction. Until recently, we did not have convincing evidence that there was any additional agents that could do this safely, and it was only in the last few months that a major trial looking at ezetimibe found that there was at least a small additional benefit when it was used on top of statin therapy. These new agents may be the next big step or the the next big drug to take this field forward, They may represent a very effective way of treating LDL, cholesterol, improving other lipid parameters, and at the same time, improving cardiovascular risk and reducing events. Okay, so we agree this is super
0: promising. A couple of logistical questions. First of all, how are these drugs taken? Is it a monoclonal antibody like an injection, or is this an oral pill? And then what's the cost?
1: Right. So these drugs are currently injectables. They're given once every two weeks on average. They are looking at other dosing regimens. There is no oral formulation as of yet, but that's something I'm sure they're looking to develop before they could fully penetrate the market with it. And in terms of cost, that's a big unknown. Clearly, monoclonal antibodies have proven to be some of the most expensive treatments in medicine. And considering the both the amount that was invested in developing these medications and the race to get them to market, we will expect that these are going to be pretty expensive medications.
0: Maybe they'll be approved for very specific uses or very specific indications just because this is going to break the bank potentially.
1: Yeah, I mean you could think of a really interesting economic argument for actually making these drugs cheaper than they typically would for monoclonal antibodies just because of how prevalent dyslipidemia is in society. Statins are currently one of the most widely used medications, and if you could get this medication used even in a fraction of those patients, that's an enormous market. Okay, so before we are accused
0: of being on the drug company's dime and being too gung-ho on these agents, why don't we talk a little bit about anything that we need to be wary or cautious of in terms of safety implications? Certainly we don't have any long-term data about these uh, meds yet, so Anything to, that we should be w- warned about?
1: Yeah, as I mentioned, um, there was no major difference in the composite adverse outcomes that they were looking at, but one of the two studies did seem to detect a signal for potentially greater rates of adverse neurocognitive events, things like delirium or dementia. That would be a terrifying outcome for the relatively small comparative benefit of improving, lo- uh, of improving lipid levels. And it's in, it brought to mind uh, a lecture that I sat in many years ago when I saw Mark Pfeffer, one of the initial major trialists looking at LDL lowering. And he put up letters that people had sent him when they were first doing statin trials. And people were saying, this drug is going to cause dementia. Cholesterol is an important part of the brain. And if you impede the body's ability to process cholesterol, you're going to cause brain damage. And it's interesting now to see that this is the one negative signal that emerged from this trial. And it's worrying and we'll have to see what happens when they do longer term trials. Okay,
0: so a brief note of caution there, but why don't we wrap up and summarize the major findings of this very exciting and potentially incredibly important uh, clinical uh, finding.
1: So these two medications that target the PCSK9 protein seem to be remarkably effective in lowering LDL cholesterol. Although the trials were not designed to look at major cardiovascular events and harm, post-hoc analysis does suggest that they do, in fact, reduce cardiovascular events to a substantial extent beyond what's achieved by statins without any major harm. Okay, thanks, Fahad. Let's
0: change gears a little bit and talk about perhaps another kind of cholesterol-based product, which is the peanut. You love the peanut. The <laughs> I humble love the peanut. peanut. <laughs> yes, the humble peanut. The tree nut. It's the tree nut, right? Stop. Just continue. <laughs> okay. So, this is the LEAP trial, a randomized trial of peanut consumption in infants at high risk of allergy. And basically, this study showed that early and sustained exposure to peanuts in infants at high risk of peanut allergy resulted in a reduced incidence of peanut allergy at five years. So, this study was published in the New England Journal of Medicine and represents an approach to a really interesting question, which is, we know that early avoidance of allergen has not been effective in preventing allergy but there remains a question of whether it's better to avoid allergens or is it better to be exposed to them early in development and so these authors in their previous work found that peanut allergy was 10 times higher in jewish children in the united kingdom versus israel and the only real difference in those two populations or one of the major differences in those two populations was that the Israeli diet has significantly earlier introduction of peanuts into the diet as compared to the UK diet.
1: Yeah, so Amal, before they did this trial, what was conventional practice for either introducing peanuts to a child's diet or perhaps for not allowing them to consume peanuts if there was a worry about them having a peanut allergy?
0: Yeah, so most clinical practice guidelines, at least for example in Canada, usually recommend avoiding the introduction of peanut, at least for the first 12 months of development. Uh, But really there's very limited evidence behind that recommendation. An important point is that this is a very prevalent uh, problem. So the prevalence of peanut allergy in in Western countries is around 3%, and that has actually doubled over the previous 10 years.
1: So I can imagine that this is a pretty controversial topic, and people are obviously worried about anaphylaxis and severe allergic reactions. How did they convince parents that this was a safe trial to try?
0: Yeah, so uh, first of all, they were they, they specifically planned to study a very high-risk infant population. So let me tell you a little bit about the study. And we'll talk about some of the things that they had to do in order to overcome those fears. So this was a randomized open-label trial. So that's the first thing, is that this had to be an open-label trial, in part because of cost considerations and figuring out a way to develop a peanut placebo is pretty challenging. Uh,
1: but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> You're really, you really You're wanted pra- to make a comment. You're though, a you were practicing mean? that. I know that. You kept saying peanut placebo, peanut placebo. <laughs> okay, all right. So
0: finding out some way to make a peanut placebo uh, would have been quite, uh, quite challenging and expensive. Uh, so that's one reason that it had to be open labeled. But another is also to allay some of the fears uh, of, of parents uh, participating in the trial. So they enrolled infants from 4 to 11 months of age who had a history of severe egg allergy or eczema, suggesting that they were at high risk of developing a peanut allergy. And they randomized them to two groups. The first was a peanut consumption group, which was fed at least 6 grams of peanuts per week until they reached 60 weeks. And they used a snack food, which was comprised of peanut butter and puffed maize that was called bamba. It was a specific product. Now, I've never heard of Bamba before. I don't know. It sounds like something you may have sampled in your earlier days.
1: <laughs> Bamba
0: free childhood for me. <laughs> okay. so And then for infants who did not like Bamba, they... How used, could they not? I, oh, wait. <laughs> how could you not? I agree. They used smooth peanut butter, and they made it clear that this trial was in no way sponsored by Bamba. Um, so that was the intervention peanut consumption group. And then the other group was an avoidance group who were told to avoid peanuts at all costs until 60 months of age. The primary outcome was the proportion of infants or children at that point with a peanut allergy at five years uh, based on a food challenge. So you asked me about this question around safety. So one thing that they did right up front uh, was that for the patients enrolled in the peanut group, they conducted a baseline food challenge. And if the participants reacted to the peanut they were told to avoid peanuts, and they were excluded from that group. That makes sense. So that was seven participants out of uh, a couple hundred. The other thing that they did was they skin prick tested all of the infants for peanut allergy so that they could stratify the, the the population into two cohorts, one that tested skin tested positive for peanut allergy, and the other one that skin tested negative. The skin tested positive being even at higher risk of developing peanut allergy. Right. So in total, they studied 640 infants, and what they found was they stratified it by two groups. So almost 100 of them had a positive initial skin prick test. In that highest of high-risk groups, they found that the avoidance group, 35% of them developed a peanut allergy, whereas in the peanut consumption group, 10% developed a peanut allergy. So that's an absolute difference of 25% and a number needed to treat of 4 to prevent one peanut allergy at five years.
1: That is a remarkably effective treatment.
0: Yeah. In the lower risk, but still high risk population who skin tested negative, the avoidance group had 14% peanut allergy at five years, and the consensium group had 2% peanut allergy. So again, a absolute risk uh, difference of 12% and a number needed to
1: treat of about eight. So again, highly effective. Right. Right. Yeah. So how much peanut did they have to consume and what was adherence like? Is this a reasonable therapy for people?
0: Yeah, so, so an important point is first that it was steady peanut consumption, so 6 grams of peanuts per week, and it had to be sustained. So one of the things that we believe to know about tolerance and allergy is that sustained exposure is important, but if you lose exposure, we're not sure what might happen. And that's actually one of the outstanding questions. So they measured adherence in two ways. The first is using a food questionnaire. And using the food questionnaire, they found that the median weekly consumption of peanuts in the first two years of life in the avoidance group was zero grams per week, Makes as sense. was required by the trial. And in the consumption group, they, the median consumption was 7.7 grams per week, so significantly above their uh, six-gram target. In order to validate that, remember we had that whole wonderful conversation about adherence in the last time you and I chatted?
1: Yeah.
0: They checked peanut levels in dust samples from the beds of these infants. Wow. Yeah. Fascinating. (laughs) Which is really cool uh, and also reminds us about the disgusting fact that most of dust in our houses is from our own skin. Uh, So the median level of peanuts detected in the bed dust of the participants in the avoidance group was a minuscule amount, like 4.1 micrograms per gram of dust, whereas in the consumption group it was 91.1 micrograms per gram of dust. So basically they use two different metrics to, to tease is, out the difference. That is the strangest mechanism of validating exposure I've ever <laughs> I've ever heard of. And yet you would think you'd be a big fan of this, having endorsed objective measures of testing adherence. Uh, that's right. That's right. Okay. Were they hoarding peanuts for their friends? Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's confounded by people who co-sleep with peanuts. <laughs> That's right. Okay. So, one of the important things you raised was this question about safety results and and whether or not there were sort of adverse reactions. So, in the two groups, they found that there were first of all there were no deaths in the study. Second of all, there were no differences in hospitalizations or serious adverse events between the groups. About 9 infants in the consumption, in the consumption group ultimately discontinued peanut consumption because of food intolerance. That's nine out of almost 300. Uh, And one of those was due to an anaphylactic exposure. There were overall 12 incidences of anaphylaxis in the avoidance group and three in the consumption group. Um, And one interesting finding, which was that in the peanut consumption group, there was a statistically significant increase in the number of upper respiratory tract infections, viral skin infections, gastroenteritis, hives, and conjunctivitis, as compared to the other group. That is a
1: weird grab bag of outcomes.
0: Yeah, so the authors explain it in in two ways. One is that this was an open-label study, and most of those symptoms are similar to food allergy-type symptoms. Hives, conjunctivitis, gastroenteritis, right? And so it's possible that that was a sort of nocebo effect, being the adverse effect of
1: an open-label study. nocebo peanut placebo and all i have to talk about is like monoclonal antibodies <laughs> ad nauseum so with this
0: clearly we've stumbled on the title for this episode which will be something like nocebo peanut placebo and pks9 or something right. like that all right so um yeah an interesting finding the other possibility is that the effect of being exposed to this allergen is somehow immunomodulatory and people actually do have increased incidences of infections
1: so uh, We've entered the era where people look at sustained immunologic responses. They look at immunoglobulin responses. What do they find in this trial?
0: Yeah, so these uh, scientists did examine the immunologic responses in these groups. And without getting into too much detail, the major finding here is that there were markedly elevated levels of peanut-specific IgE, so the immunoglobulins associated with allergy, in the avoidance group than in the consumption group. So in the consumption group, there was much less circulating immunoglobulin uh, against peanuts. So that's the first thing. The second thing that they found, interestingly, is they examined the ratio between IgE, sort of the allergy-type immunoglobulin, and IgG4, which has recently become an important sort of clinical entity with IgG4-related disease. But something I didn't know is that it turns out through this work and other work we're finding that IgG4 is actually protective against allergy and so they found that in the population of infants exposed to peanuts they had elevated IgG4 levels compared to IgG as opposed to the other group where there was lower IgG4 levels.
1: Wow that is fascinating.
0: Yeah so some Brilliant immunologist will tell us what that really means and so that we simple clinicians can understand how to interpret that. But for now, it seems like an intriguing result.
1: This reminds me of the broader question of allergy when people are exposed to non-hygienic environments. There seems to be lower allergy. Has this tied into kind of the broader way that we understand the interaction between IgG4 and IgEs?
0: Yeah, so aller- I mean, I don't want to speak far outside of my own realm of expertise and it's been many years since my microbiology and immunology degree. But uh, this whole notion of allergy and tolerance is incredibly mysterious. For some reason, you can expose people through, for example, ragweed vaccinations or exposure, graded exposure to a drug that they're allergic to and you can induce tolerance, right? And one of the interesting things we know about those therapies is that sustained exposure is important. And so one of the things that these investigators are looking at is what will happen long-term to these infants, specifically looking at those who stop their steady peanut exposure. Will they remain tolerant, or will they then develop allergy, and will their allergy be better or worse? And so they're conducting what they're calling the leap-on study to examine those very questions. That will be
1: exciting to see. So what is your takeaway? What do you do with this?
0: Yeah, I think the major takeaway here is that first of all, this debunks the myth that avoidance of allergens is beneficial. Right. I think that that's a pretty clear finding and multiple studies are sort of pointing in that direction. In terms of what exactly to do about this exposure, I think we don't yet know, especially until we have better understanding of the importance of a sustained exposure and the amount of exposure. I think prudence obviously is still important, but it's clear that I think we're moving towards the direction that we may soon have evidence to suggest that
1: this is a better strategy. And certainly for the majority of parents, this is not a study that tells them that increasing exposure is good for their children. This was done in a very controlled way with a protocol and with prior testing to determine who would benefit. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh, And again, this was also a very high-risk, sort of allergic phenotype population. And so the implications for the general population are also a little bit unclear. Great. Fascinating study, Mo. Okay, why don't we wrap up and move on to our Good Stuff segment. So, Fahad, what caught your eye from the world of medicine this week?
1: Uh, So, uh, an article in the New York Times that I saw recently caught my attention, and it outlined some of the kind of devious practices that physicians and pharmaceutical companies are using to create novel doses of well-known medications that are already sold in generic forms. And they use those novel doses to greatly increase the price. The article describes how this is an increasingly common practice in the United States. And for example, looking at a medication like cyclobenzaprine, this is a medication that's commonly used as a muscle relaxant for uh, people who are having back spasms. For example, it's now extremely cheap. It's sold in a generic form at 5 milligrams and 10 milligrams but it's increasingly being sold now at 7.5 milligrams at five times the cost of the generic medication. And it's being marketed as specifically an effective dose to treat back spasms with absolutely no evidence to suggest that it is more effective than either five or 10 milligrams. This article is kind of worrying to me because not only is it being done, not only is this practice being pushed by pharmaceutical companies, but it's being pushed by physicians to susceptible patients and physicians are sharing the profit that's being made on these medications. Uh, Really a dubious practice, seems ethically very worrying, and just bad for the practice of medicine in general. Okay, that's a great recommendation, worrying, troubling, I agree with
0: you. My Good Stuff uh, recommendation is an editorial that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine called The Watchman Saga, Closure at Last. So first of all, this is the Watchman device, which was the left atrial appendage closure device. We reviewed this device in a previous episode, and there was a study, a large randomized control trial called the PROTECT-AF trial, uh, which showed that the Watchman device uh, was superior to warfarin for preventing stroke in patients with atrial fibrillation who had high risk of stroke. So this device is actually just currently been made available in limited centers in the United States uh, and is not yet available widely in Canada and this article reviews the history about the device and its review by the FDA compared with European regulators now interestingly this device has been available in Europe since 2005 and so these authors are highlighting a very important difference both between the European agencies and the American agency and also what they describe as a missed opportunity. So the first point is that although EU patients have had access to the Watchman device since 2005, the accumulated clinical experience in Europe contributed basically no scientific information to the FDA deliberations. So their argument is that this is 10 years of lost data. Uh, That is a real shame. Their second point is that unless forced to do so, companies are unlikely to embark on expensive evaluations. So if the FDA, like the European Union, had approved the Watchman device in 2005, we never would have had the benefit of the PROTECT-AF study or the PREVAIL trial uh, to really give us a rigorous clinical evaluation of these studies. So their argument is that the current system provides little incentive for post-approval conduct of major randomized control trials. So their major recommendation was that agencies should provide approval perhaps for just five years for high-risk devices and insist that manufacturers provide data after that to make an ongoing case for both safety and effectiveness. And I thought it was a really interesting and intriguing point to make where there's a time and a need for us to both lower lower the bar to entry so that we can have access to disruptive and innovative technologies, but maybe increase the incentives in the system for rigorous and expensive evaluations.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I can imagine that this is a highly contentious uh, editorial or an argument because of the enormous cost implications on both sides. Okay, thanks Fahad. Pleasure to chat with you as always and I hope we can do it again soon. Great to be here. Talk to you
0: soon.